Well, some years ago, there was a big story in Chicago about how the baby Jesus figure had been stolen from the nativity scene at Daly Plaza. And so the police began to search for baby Jesus, and they found him at a bus station. So they brought him back to Daly Plaza, and this time they bolted him down to the manger, and they put a steel cable over him to make sure nobody stole baby Jesus. But sure enough, days later, a 19-year-old stole baby Jesus, figured out how to steal him, how to undo the padlock and everything. They arrested him. They got baby Jesus back. They convicted him on some misdemeanor. But they got Jesus, baby Jesus back. They put him back in that manger scene. They bolted him down, had the steel court, and they had a group, a security team around him. They called them the God Squad. I'm not making this up. The God Squad. And they were committed to keep baby Jesus in that manger. Now, during this time of year, I think it's normal for us to think of Jesus as sweet baby Jesus in the manger. Our songs about him are that he's tender and mild, how he lays down his sweet head, and no crying does he make. All these wonderful images of the peaceful divine child. And my question this morning is, have we bolted down our perception of Jesus to the manger? Have we bolted our perception of Jesus down to how the Christmas carols depict him, how the Christmas cards portray him. I mean, think about some of the Christmas cards that you've received, some of those that you've given out. I mean, do they really portray the, all the truth about what happened some 2,000 years ago in this insignificant you know, village in some third-rate country? Because really, it was not that beautiful. What I want to do this morning is I, I mean, I, and some of you are going to be mad at me about this, but I want to cut through some of the nostalgia and some of the sentimentality to really understand what happened on that first Christmas. Because truthfully, there was nothing lovely about having to hunt desperately for lodging for your young wife to give birth to her first baby. And really, there's nothing uh, lovely about having to scrape aside the cattle dung so you could lay down your wife on a barnyard dirt floor so you could give birth to the child. There's nothing attractive about having to wrap that newborn baby in pieces of torn cloth because you had no clothes to put on the baby. And the mother isn't warmed by the idea of having a baby born into a world that she knows had no room for him and no room for her. And by the way, no one was singing Silent Night when Herod and his soldiers killed every baby two years old and younger in Bethlehem while trying to kill the Christ child. Rather, there were shrieks of agony and lamentation. In fact, I want to show you a verse that I guarantee you you've never seen on a Christmas card. Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. You've never seen that verse on a Christmas card. No, the Christmas carols and the Christmas cards fall short, way short, 
of accurately portraying all that happened at the birth of Christ and shortly afterwards. But in all honesty, most of us are still committed to keeping our perception of Jesus bolted down to the manger scene of the Christmas cards and the Christmas carols. But if we do that, we, we miss so much truth that I want us to see today. And by the way, so many also tend to view Jesus as an adult, the same way they view him as a baby. As an adult, they picture him as being mild, sweet-natured, gentle Savior, someone who always talks softly, who's got a perfect complexion, a twinkle in his eye, and is always tolerant of everybody and everything. Well, this season, I want to ask the question, what child is this? Really? Well, we know the carol, what child is this? Who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. But I want to kind of go past that carol onto some deeper questions. Deeper than the question, what child is this? I want to ask the question, what child is this that grew up to say this? Matthew 10, 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What child is this that grew up to say that? Now, to answer that question, really, we've got to go back 2,700 years to what the prophet Isaiah prophesied and wrote down for us. In fact, we sang this verse in two different, a carol, two different songs this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Let's look at this verse. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Let's keep going. Next verse. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Now, this passage seems to indicate that when Messiah comes, he will bring about his kingdom in fullness immediately. He will bring spiritual, political, social, and physical peace immediately. But the child has been born, the son has been given, and his kingdom has not come in fullness. Think about that. The prince of peace has come, and the world at large is not experiencing spiritual, political, social, or physical peace. So what is going on? Well, first of all, we need to understand a little bit about how biblical prophecy works. While nearly every Prophecy has historical application in either the immediate or near future of the prophets prophesying. The ultimate burden of all biblical prophecy is the coming of the Messiah, the day of the Lord, God's judgment on the earth, and the messianic kingdom to follow. While each prophet was usually speaking, first speaking about the circumstances of their day, or the events of the near future, the primary burden of the entire Bible 
of every prophet and apostle is the coming of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom rule on the earth. Modern Christians tend to major on the prophecies that point to the first coming of Christ and minor on the prophecies of the second coming of Christ. But the fact of the matter is that the primary emphasis of Scripture is on the second coming. Far more prophecies address the second coming of Christ than the first coming. And frequently, listen to this now, frequently the Scriptures intermingle the historical and the future in one seamless passage. And this drives the Western mind crazy. But the Bible is not a Western book. It's an Eastern book. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 speak as if the primary purpose of this child, this son, is to vindicate Israel over and against its enemies. And consider what this child is supposed to bring about. Israel's boundaries will be expanded. The yoke that burdens the Jewish people will be shattered. Warrior's boots and blood will be a thing of the past. And this child will bring about everlasting peace. Yet the child has come. But the remainder of this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. Israel is still oppressed. Wars continue all over the earth. The truth is, within this passage is at least a 2,000-year pause or gap. Yet, at face value, just reading this passage, we, have, we, we see the historical, the child is born, and the future fulfillment, he will rule, shatter the rod of oppression, and bring about everlasting peace. So how are we to understand passages like this? Let's go back. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, and paradise is lost. But before we get out of the very same chapter that Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis chapter 3, before we get out of that chapter, God promises that he's going to send a deliverer one day. He's going to restore what's been broken and restore paradise. This deliverer would defeat the devil. He would provide forgiveness of sins, and he would bring mankind back into a relationship with God. In fact, this deliverer would redeem all of creation and bring it back to paradise. That's the promise in Genesis 3. But how would it happen? See, the idea in the Old Testament is really pretty simple. And the idea in the Old Testament is this. How it's going to happen, one day Messiah is going to come. And he's going to come with overwhelming power. He's going to establish his kingdom. Bam! It's done. Let me give you an example of that. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision. This vision is this great image, big statue. This has a head of gold. It's got a chest of silver. It's got a thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And in the vision, a stone is cut out without human hands of a mountain, and it comes and strikes this statue, this image, on the feet, and it grinds it down to powder, and then the wind, here's the quote, the wind comes and says, so that not a trace of them could be found. Then the stone has shattered this image that represents these successive kingdoms throughout history. The stone that shatters these kingdoms then becomes a giant mountain that fills the whole earth. 
Now, what's the interpretation of this vision? Well, we don't have to guess because a few verses later we're told the interpretation of the vision. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. The image represents these successive nations in history that would dominate world history. And the meaning of the stone is given to us in Daniel 2, 44 and 45. Let me read it. It says, and in, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. So this is the Old Testament perspective on the future. The prophets look forward to this glorious day when the God's kingdom will come in great power, shatter all kingdoms, and then rule forever and ever. That's how the Old Testament prophets spoke about it most often. In that day, God would set up his reign. It displaces all other reigns, all other kingdoms, all other authorities. God alone then is king in those days. That's the Old Testament perspective. So again, I just re reiterate this. In the Old Testament perspective, the coming of God's kingdom is viewed as a single great event. A mighty manifestation of God's power sweeps away all wicked kingdoms, and God's rule fills the earth. Bam! That is why well, so many Jews, when Jesus came and began his ministry, didn't think Jesus was the Messiah because that was not happening. That's why even John the Baptist, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, his cousin, the one who talked about his coming, even John the Baptist, while in a prison cell, is having his doubts about Jesus, are you the one? He sends a messenger to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Why was John doubting at this point? He's doubting because Jesus was not acting like the Messiah he was announcing. Where was the judgment of the wicked that John expected would happen? Herod Antipas still ruled Galilee. Roman legions still marched through Jerusalem. Authority still rested in the hands of a pagan, Roman, Pilate. Idolatrous, polytheist, immoral Rome still ruled the world with an iron hand. So John's question was probably, where is the stone, the Messiah, that would shatter all that rule? Where is it? Jesus certainly wasn't acting like what John expected he would act like. See, the truth is this, the kingdom is... That, that Daniel's talking about is yet to come. It's still going to come exactly the way the prophet said it would come. It's still going to come. When every human kingdom is going to be displaced by God's kingdom, that is going to happen. It's yet future. But something has happened that was cl not clearly foretold in the Old Testament. Something happened that was unexpected. That's why Jesus calls it the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery. What is a mystery? A mystery is a new revelation. 
So Jesus is calling it the mystery of the kingdom. And the, and the mystery of the kingdom is this, that the very kingdom of God has now come in advance to work among men and women, boys and girls, in an unexpected way. It has come quietly, unobtrusively, and secretly. In the spiritual realm, Jesus has now come to offer men and women, boys and girls, the blessings of God's rule now. Before the kingdom comes in fullness, he's offering people the blessings of God's rule, the deliverance from the power of Satan now. The kingdom of God is not being forced on anyone yet. It's being offered as a gift. It can be accepted or rejected. Now, when you get to the parables of Mark chapter 4, Gospel of Mark chapter 4, and the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, it illustrates the mystery of the kingdom of God, which is yet to come in fullness, but actually is now come in advance in an unexpected form. So the kingdom of God is this. It's coming in the future age in fullness, but right now in the present age, men and women, boys and girls can enter the kingdom now, become citizens of the kingdom now. The kingdom's coming yet in future, in the fullness, you can enter now. So the mystery of the kingdom is just the kingdom of God is here now, but not with irresistible power. The kingdom of God has come, but not yet like a, grind, like a stone grinding that image to powder. Not yet. Right now the kingdom of God is available, but it does not force itself on anyone. On the contrary, Jesus says, it's like a man sowing seed. He's offering it. But you must choose to accept it or reject it. You make a choice. This is the mystery of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come among men, yet men can reject it. Now, that is a staggering thought to the mentality of the Old Testament prophet. When God's kingdom comes, it comes with power. Who can resist it? That's why Jesus calls what he's offering is the mystery of the kingdom of God. It wasn't revealed clearly in the Old Testament that it would happen that way. But now, through the teaching ministry of Jesus, this mystery is being revealed. The kingdom of God is here, but it can be rejected. One day, God will indeed manifest his mighty power and purge the earth of all wickedness, sin, and evil and compel people to bow before him, but not yet. Right now, people can make a choice. They can receive it, but they must have a willing heart and they must have a submissive will. They must desire the kingdom by desiring the king. See, those who receive the kingdom now are those who have received the king now. The very definition of kingdom of God is that which is under the rule of God. How do I become a citizen of the kingdom? How do I receive the kingdom? By receiving the king, Jesus, as your king. And those who receive Jesus as their king are now citizens of the kingdom now. And, of course, will be forever and ever. And those who received the Prince of Peace now can now have peace in a world that has no peace. Romans 5.1, 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace for all those who've come to know him. But he hasn't brought his kingdom yet in fullness. That comes when he comes again. What does he do now? He comes now to offer, he offers us forgiveness of our sins. He offers us peace with God. Now, he will come to wage war and bring judgment when he comes again. And when he comes again, he will bring peace politically, socially, physically on the earth when he comes again. But for now, it's only those who know the Prince of Peace that can really walk in peace. So if he didn't come the first time to bring political, social, and physical peace on earth and goodwill to mankind, then what did he do? Why did, what did he come to do the first time? Okay, listen to this very clearly. He came with an offer, and he came with a demand. He offers us something, and he demands something. He came to offer the kingdom of God right now. You can become a citizen of that future glorious kingdom right now in this present evil age. He came to offer the kingdom now for all those who receive him as their king. They came to offer the kingdom of God to those who choose him as their king. But he also came with a demand. He demands something. He demands a decision. But since that is a choice that everyone's free to make or not make, that means there will be divisions. Remember, Matthew 10, 34, let's look at it again. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What's he talking about? So if I'm in a situation, perhaps my family, and I choose Jesus as my king, and they do not choose him, then there's going to be some tension and division and decisions and choices and values. That's what he's talking about. That's why the very next verse says this, Matthew 10, 35. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So what child is this? This is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he'll have no rivals, not even family members. But he doesn't stop there. After these radical statements about family, Jesus addresses a second thing we often put in a place that belongs to God alone. And that is ourselves. Next verse, Matthew 10, 38. And anyone who does not take his, take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What child is this? This is the King of kings and Lord of lords who will have no rivals, not even ourselves. Again, he's using a metaphor. This time it's a cross. A cross is a symbol of death and execution. What he's saying is you must take up your cross. You must be willing to sacrifice your life. Let me unpack that a little bit. That means that I put anything that is a challenge, competition to my devotion to Christ as king, my ambitions, my desires, my dreams, my goals, 
And I submit all that to Christ. I die to myself. All my control, all my goals, all my pursuits, everything now bows to Christ. Self-denial is not a popular message to die to self. I mentioned at the beginning of the message the baby Jesus figure being stolen from Daly Plaza a number of times. Well, there was a Roman Catholic church in New York City that had the Jesus figure stolen as well, but this Jesus figure was 200 pounds plaster on a cross. But the thief unbolted him from the cross and just took the plaster Jesus. And they asked the artist about that, and the artist says, I don't know, why in the world will they take just the Jesus and leave the cross behind? And I thought, oh my goodness, does that ever give a picture of our culture? Many in our culture, they want Jesus, but they don't want the cross. So we want the benefits of faith. You know, we want the assurance, the comfort, the good feelings, the ticket in our pocket that we're going to heaven when we die, but we don't want the cross. But the choice is not up to us. The heart of Christianity is this paradox that Jesus speaks of. He who finds his life, otherwise you maintain your life, you maintain control. It's all still about you. You're still the captain of your ship. You maintain your life, Jesus says, you lose it. Those who lose their life, okay, Christ, you're the king. Whatever you say goes. Everything is under that. Then you lost your life. You died to yourself. You got your life. See, I think a lot, of, a lot of professing Christians, they kind of throw God a bone every once in a while. But they need, you know, we all need to know that's not going to work. It's the person who gives up his or her life, who surrenders himself completely to God, who says, you are king. That is the person that is part of the kingdom. It's a paradox. Give up your life, you find it. But here's the truth. You cannot negotiate with Jesus. What child is this? He's king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he does not negotiate. You cannot say, okay, Jesus, I'll give you this much, but I'm holding on to this much. Is that okay? His answer is no. Not okay. There's no negotiating with him. You either accept or reject. You submit or you reject him. See, Jesus is a threat to all illegitimate kings. He's a threat. That's why he was a threat to Herod. Herod, in the days of the birth of Christ, he was, a th- he was an illegitimate king. And, he was, and Jesus, the birth of Christ, was a threat to him. He's a threat to all illegitimate kings, including ourselves. So Jesus has come to dethrone us so he can reign over us. You do not negotiate with this king. What child is this? King of kings and lord of lords. And you don't negotiate with him. You submit or you reject him. So again, my goal this morning is, I, I, you know, I myself struggle to get through the nostalgia and the sentimentality of this time of year. But I'm trying to help all of us together break through this to get to the reality of what child this is. Jesus has come for our full allegiance and that will cause division. That will cause division of families, division of friendships, division of relationships. When I started following Jesus as a college student, I lost half my friends overnight. Division. So during this season, don't be fooled. Don't look at the manger scene and think about this innocent 
helpless, sweet, baby, tender, mild, no crying does he make. Jesus did not come to bring peace like most people think he came to bring peace. He came with a sword. He came to offer us something and demand something. He came to offer us the kingdom. And the demand is he must be the king. Your king, my king. You know, Cross-bearing means death to self. It means my life, my will, my ambitions, my desires, my hopes are all just given to Christ. Just give them to Christ. What child is this? He's king of kings and lord of lords. What does he offer? He offers the kingdom of God right now. What does he demand? Surrender. Allegiance. The end of all rivals. Death to self. So my question as we close here in just a moment is, have you done that? Have you made a resolute decision to say, Jesus, you're the king now. I die to myself. I believe in you, Jesus. You're my king. Or maybe that you haven't done that, but you, you want to do it today. I urge you right now, and don't put this off. If you're thinking, I think I want to make this decision, make it today. Because I'm telling you what happens when you walk out these doors and you go have lunch and you get busy shopping and all that, this decision goes away. This decision, make this decision right. Right now you're hearing the word of God. The spirit of God is all around you. Demons are held at bay. You are hearing the truth and it's clear to you. What will you decide? Will you receive him as king or will you reject him? And some of you, in all honesty, you made that decision some time ago, but in honesty, you're thinking, I took it back. You made a decision one time, that you, were, you really made it, but now you're starting to negotiate again. Now you offer Jesus this, this, and this, but you keep this and this. But today, the Lord's calling you back to the cross. Back to the cross. I'm going to ask Hosea to come on up. Let me ask everyone to stand here for a moment. What child is this? Jesus, the king. What does he offer? The kingdom of God. What does he, what does he demand? Total surrender. And by the way, and that truth is not on any Christmas cards. So some of you have never made that decision today, and today's the day to make it. Some of you made it in the past, but you know it's time to kind of re-up. You know it's, you, you slipped away, and it's time to once again take the cross, die to yourself. And so I'm going to ask these guys, they're going to bring a cross up here, set in front. In front of that cross is going to be a little basket with little wooden crosses. And many of you made that decision, and you're walking in it. And many of you have never made a decision, but today you want to. And some of you have slipped away, and you want to come back to, to rededicate to that decision, to take up your cross. And in front of that cross is a basket of little wooden crosses. And during the song, this is a way to kind of Remember, you're making this decision. Come up here and just grab one of these little wooden crosses and take it with you. Just take it with you, reminding yourselves that, wait, I'm, if, I'm, if he's my king, you know, he's not my king. If I'm not, I mean, I'm not in the kingdom if he's not my king. So I'm taking that cross to say yes to you as king, Jesus. Fresh today. Let's pray. Lord, you know where each one of us is. My prayer, Father, is that nobody could leave this room without realizing that they can't negotiate anymore. I pray for just a spirit, Lord, of, of repentance. So just, Jesus, would you just let your Holy Spirit have full reign in all of our hearts? We want you to reign as king in every life today. 
So Lord, those who never made the decision, those who need to re remake it today, Lord, would you just now speak to their hearts that we walk through this season, Lord, with you as our king. So as we sing this song, as Jose is going to sing it over us, just come up here and grab these crosses if you like, and I'm going to close in prayer in a moment. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow.
give you everything, Jesus. We give it all to you. All our hopes and dreams, aspirations, goals, our lives, our families, we give it all. We give it all to you, Jesus. You're worth it all. And Lord, we pray this season, Lord, as we see the manger scenes, we will remember what child this is, Lord. You're the King of Kings, and you're the Lord of Lords. And you're our King. We pray you'd use us this week, Lord, to share the good news with others. We pray this in your name. Amen.